Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! We knew, we, we realized we had a tool in international justice to bring to book um, people who seemed out of the reach of justice. And, and we were approached by one of Suleiman's uh, colleagues, an activist from Chad named Delphine Jaraib, who said, we have somebody, we have somebody who's committed worse crimes than Pinochet, um, and he now lives in Senegal. To catch a dictator. The Pursuit and Trial of Hussein Abre. Today, we speak with Reed Brody, the international human rights lawyer known as the Dictator Hunter. Then, Ed Young, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer, will talk about his book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. So this book is about the incredible ways in which other animals sense the world around us. Uh, at the core of it is a concept called umwelt, uh, the idea that each creature has its own um, sensory bubble, its own particular sets of sights and sounds and textures and smells that it can perceive, but that other animals might not be able to. All that and more coming up. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. In this special broadcast, we begin with Reed Brody, the international human rights lawyer who's been called the dictator hunter for his role in bringing historic legal cases against former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet and others. Reed Brody has just written a book. It's called To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hussein Abre. Abre is a former U.S. ally who's been described as Africa's Pinochet. He served as president of Chad from 1982 to 1990 and oversaw widespread human rights abuses. The Chadian Truth Commission accused his government of systematic torture and being involved in as many as 40,000 deaths. Under President Ronald Reagan, the CIA helped Abre take power in 1982, and he remained a U.S. ally, even visiting Reagan in the White House. Hussein Abre fled Chad in 1990 following a coup. He may have gotten away with his crimes had it not been for a group of torture and rape survivors who joined with human rights activists and lawyers to spend decades bringing him to justice. The architects of the case were the victims themselves. This is Suleiman Gengeng speaking in a Human Rights Watch video that also features his testimony. During two years and a half in prison, I saw my friends, my fellow inmates, die from hunger, die from despair, die from torture, and die from diseases. From the depths of my cell, I swore to God to fight for justice if I got out alive. 
25 years after Chadian dictator Issen Abre was overthrown and fled to Senegal. He was convicted in 2016 by the extraordinary African chambers in the Senegalese court system and sentenced to life in prison. A judge read the verdict. La Chambre vous déclare coupable. Hissène Abre, the court finds you guilty under Article 10.2 of the Statute of Crimes Against Humanity, including rape, forced slavery, voluntary homicide, the widespread and systematic practice of summary executions, forced disappearances, torture, and inhumane acts subject to Articles 6A, B, F, and G of the statute. Consequently, the court sentences you to life in prison. The cheering you hear is Chadian victims of Hussein Abre in the courtroom. For more, Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I recently spoke to Reed Brody, the international lawyer who worked with Isenabre's victims to win a guilty verdict. Brody is formerly with Human Rights Watch. His book is just out, To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Isenabre. I began by asking him to talk about how the trial took place. Well, this trial, is, as you say, Amy, was the result of decades of organizing uh, by the victims, uh, by their allies. Um, you know, Suleiman, I mean, I, I get chills when I listen to that uh, talk that he, he, he gave to the judge. When Suleiman uh, was people around him were dying in his prison, and he took an oath that if he ever got out, he would fight for justice. And, and when he got out, he was a walking skeleton, um, but he used all his charisma to ga galvanize the victims. Uh, his and Harbury had fled to Senegal, where he seemed out of the reach of justice. And it was actually the Pinochet case, the arrest in, in London in 1998 of Augusto Pinochet of Chile on a warrant from a Spanish judge uh, for crimes committed in Chile. And, and I went to, I went to London uh, to work on that case, uh, and I spent the better part of six months in London. And and when the when the House of Lords said uh, that the uh, that Pinochet did not have immunity, that he could be prosecuted anywhere in the world despite his status as a former head of state, um, we we knew we we realized we had a tool in international justice to bring to book um, people who seemed out of the reach of justice, and and we were approached by one of Suleiman's uh, colleagues, an activist from Chad named Delphine Jaib, who said. We have somebody. We have somebody who's committed worse crimes than Pinochet, um, and he now lives in Senegal. And what what really interested me about that case was that he was in Senegal. That this would not be, if 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 we could make it happen, a case of a of a first world country prosecuting a, a, the head of one of its former colonies, but one African country um, pursuing. Uh, for human rights crimes, a dictator of another African country. And uh, we began to investigate. We, we met, I met, I mean, Suleiman, an amazing, amazing man. Um, and we helped them file a case in Senegal. And in 2000, we brought the Chadian victims to Senegal. 
Um, a Senegalese judge actually arrested him uh, in 2000. Um, but it would take another 16 years of, of ups and downs, of fighting, of, of, of one step forward, two <laughs> steps back, um, before we actually got to the trial in Senegal. And, and those were years um, of, 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 of organizing by the victims. Those were years of Suleiman and his comrades and me and others going all around the world. Uh, when Senegal refused to prosecute Habre, we filed the case in Belgium. Uh, which then had a long-arm universal jurisdiction law. A Belgian judge began to investigate the case. Um, uh, then, as so often happens, um, the Belgian law, um, which was great when it was working for with Rwanda uh, to prosecute Rwandans and 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 other. Uh, third world countries, um, when cases were filed in Belgium against first Ariel Sharon and then the uh, George Bush father, um, Donald Rumsfeld came to Belgium and said, Belgium, if, if, if NATO leaders cannot travel to Belgium without worrying about arrest, then maybe we'll have to move NATO. Um, and the Belgian law then on which this case hung got repealed. But Suleiman, uh, we brought Suleiman to Belgium, and he looked policymakers in the eyes, the minister of justice, the prime minister, leaders, and said, you can't do this. And he tells his story, the same story he told in court about the oath. And people said, no, no, Mr. Gengang, we'll find a way to keep this case going. Belgium spends four years investigating the case, ex seeks his extradition from Senegal. Senegal refuses the extradition turns to the African Union. The African Union then says, Senegal, you have a responsibility to prosecute. The African Union was very interested in, 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 in Senegal doing something because the African Union felt picked on by the International Criminal Court. We can talk about that perhaps later. Um, ultimately, Belgium took Senegal to the International Court of Justice, the World Court, um, which ordered Senegal um, to prosecute Hissen Habre without further delay if it did not extradite him. A new president was elected in Senegal, Macky Sall, uh, uh, who we had cultivated over the years. I mean, during these 15 years in the desert, um, the Chadian victims were all over the world, building alliances uh, with, with people, particularly in Senegal, so that, to create the political conditions finally for this trial to happen. It was a remarkable trial. I want to go to more of the people who testified in this trial and who organized the victims. Uh, these are two women who joined uh, the human rights case against Abre, speaking in a Human Rights Watch video that also features their testimony. One testified she was raped personally by Abre. They slept with us without our consent. Without our consent. And who did it? The first night, the president himself was among them. Which president? Hussein Habre. There was nobody but Hussein Habre. Including the president himself? He was among them? During our stay at Wadidu military camp, we didn't receive any medical care. We didn't get proper food. They just brought us as sexual slaves. We were given medications. We realized afterwards that it was for us not to get pregnant. What is most important about this deposition is to have this story known. 
de faire juger and to prosecute this crime so that other women do not become victims of it d'autres femmes n'en soient victimes parce qu'on parle because we speak very little about rape in chad The fact that I went there, saw everybody, and I saw Isain Abre sitting there, that gave me the strength to speak and to release what was inside me. So for me, I don't hold on to that hate. It's over. I had a wound inside, but I let it go. That last person was Kaltuma Defala, and before that, uh, Khatija Hassan. Uh, they were both testifying. And then an interview with Jacqueline Modena, uh, who is the person who writes the introduction to your book, To Catch a Dictator Read. I mean, the emotional power of these women speaking, and then Jacqueline's role in bringing Hissène Habre to justice, if you could take it from there. Well, these, these three women are, are absolute heroes. I mean, Jacqueline uh, was the lawyer for the victim—is still the lawyer for the victims. Um, she survived a grenade attack. Um, allegedly uh, by one of Habre's accomplices, who, who she was also suing for uh, back in Chad. Um, she has shrapnel, and she testified—I mean, she, she, she presented the case and pleaded the case on behalf of the victims with shrapnel still in her leg from that assassination attempt. Um, Kaltuma and, and, and Khadija, who I've known uh, for 20 years, um, you know, took this amazingly courageous step going uh, from Sen Chad to Senegal, sitting before these—in this courtroom with all the lights, talking about what happened to them. The reason they did that, the reason they were able to break their silence was because they felt part of the team. Uh, they were part of the effort to bring Habre to justice, and, and they had confidence in, in Jacqueline. It was not— it was not a disembodied moment for them. They were part of uh, this long struggle. And the bombshell of the trial was the fact um, that Habre had used women as sexual slaves. And we actually have the documents uh, that, of his political police uh, that show that these women were sent um, uh, to a, a desert camp to be um, uh, the, the documents don't say why, but it was clear, it's clear uh, that they were there to serve Habre's army. Um, Khadija uh, testified that she was personally uh, raped on four occasions by, by Hissen Habre. I mean, these, 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 this testimony proved to be the most dramatic uh, part uh, of the trial. It was the first time a dictator was convicted of personally um, having uh, raped uh, someone. And, and, and it was a major advance um, that would not have happened if it were not for Jacqueline Mudena, their lawyer, and for the fact that these women felt um, uh, supported and felt that they were part of the effort of bringing Habre to justice. Reid, you mentioned the finding of the documents, which ended up being the documentary evidence that was presented in the court in Senegal. Talk about how these documents were found. Well, this was a this was really a stroke of luck. We were we were visiting the um, the complex of the pol political police uh, first, the dungeon uh, where where hundreds of, of 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 prisoners died, and next to the dungeon, the headquarters of uh, the former political police. And th there, we found on the ground uh, the documents were still there, strewn over several rooms, tens of thousands of documents, um, spying reports, lists of 
uh, daily lists of prisoners, um, uh, documents, hundreds of documents, uh, thousands of documents that were sent to Hiss and Harbray. When we interviewed a prisoner, um, we knew uh, what day they were arrested, when they were transferred from one place to another. There were documents there with Habre's handwriting on them, uh, in, which he, in which he actually ordered um, uh, uh, that war criminals, uh, that, that, that prisoners of war not be uh, given hospital treatment, um, in which he, he was given information, his and Habre, on over 1,000 detainees in his prison. So this became the documentary background of the case. And really, um, every time a witness would testify at, at trial, we were able to produce the document that showed, yes, he was in prison from this date to this date. Um, we found, um, you know, incredible stories of bravery in those. I mean, a woman who smuggled out um, uh, information about torture in prison and who was executed and who many prisoners had told us about. We were able to find um, the interrogation report when she was uh, found out and, and, and she was confronted by her torturers and said, and, and she said, you know, I would do this again um, no matter what you do to me, even if I die in prison, um, uh, I'm doing it for my country and Chad will speak about me. And Fifteen years later, I rose locusim. I find this document. Um, it's like like a, like a, a note in a bottle, um, uh, and I feel like we have to talk about rose locusim. And we actually made a, a documentary. Uh, uh, my partner Isabel Coichet made a documentary called "Talking About Rose," um, based on those documents and what Rose told her torturers uh, the day that she was executed. Reed Brody, the acclaimed international human rights attorney, author of the new book, To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Issein Abre. We'll be back with him after this. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we return to our interview with the international human rights attorney, Reed Brody, author of To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Issein Abre. Reed, we have an excerpt of Parler de Rose talking about Rose, which is narrated by the Oscar-winning actress Juliette Binoche about the life and death of Rose Locasim, that prisoner of Hissène Habre, the former dictator of Chad, executed, as you say, in part because she took these extensive notes to document the abuse she and other prisoners suffered uh, to notify their families. Rose took the packets and wrote everything she saw in prison. They take you away at 11 a.m. or 8 p.m. or 1 in the morning. No matter if you were Muslim or Christian, she wrote down everything. And if you died, she noted it all down. I looked, but she didn't want anybody to see. She wrote people's names. Who was in charge? Who was tortured? Who was killed? She got their names to give to their relatives. 
After our release, they found out Rose had written such and such. When she wrote, she would hide. She didn't want anyone to see what she wrote. She would hide off to the side. She did her writing. Every time there was a death or some mistreatment, you sensed the look for rebellion in her face. She noted down the name of every prisoner who died. With the dates. So she could notify the relatives. Rose was betrayed, and DDS agents came to take her away. In the report of Rose's last interrogation, found 15 years later among the DDS files, her captors wrote that Rose was irredeemable and continues to undermine the security of the state, even in prison. They recommended that the authorities punish her severely. Rose was executed the same day. Again, an excerpt from the film Parler de Rose, talking about Rose, narrated by uh, the actress Juliette Binoche, about the life and death of Rose Lokissim, a prisoner of Hissan Habre. Absolutely devastating. Uh, that film directed by the well-known Spanish director um, Isabel Crochette, the partner of our guest today, Reed Brody, who's just published his book, To Catch a Dictator. Before we go on to those larger issues, Reed, of international justice and perhaps how this can be used as a model, um, what about those who were not in the courtroom next to Hissène Habre, who you can see throughout? And that is the countries, France and the United States, and their support for Hissène Habre. Well, of course, Hissène Habre was brought to power uh, by the United States, by Ronald Reagan. Uh, the first covert operation of the Ronald Reagan era, before Jonas Savimbi in Angola, before the Contras in Nicaragua. Um, was bringing Hissène Habre to power as a bulwark against Muammar Gaddafi, who was occupying uh, northern Chad. Uh, and the U.S. ignored the fact that he had already uh, had a long record of atrocities as a rebel leader, as, a, as an interim prime minister. Um, and the U.S. funneled uh, arms uh, to Hissène Habre in a covert operation, helped him take power. And then the U.S. and France supported Habre throughout his eight years um, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a bulwark against Gaddafi, uh, the same way, frankly, that the U.S. And, and France and the West are supporting the current dictatorship of Chad um, as an island of stability uh, in, in a region now uh, 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 dominated uh, by by ISIS and and, and by jihadists and and uh, with a lot of instability on in Sudan and northern uh, Nigeria and Cameroon, um, but we see how short sighted this is. Um, uh, we found in the documents. Uh, information about training courses in the U.S. that many of Habre's um, uh, political uh, police took, including people who were later identified by the Truth Commission as the worst torturers in Chad. Uh, we don't have—we know that the U.S. Um, state—that the U.S. had an advisor 
uh, to Hissen Habre's political police. Uh, the same political police that had created this dungeon that put Suleiman in jail, that was sending all these documents um, to his uh, to Hissen Habre. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, um, I don't think that that the U.S. or, or France um, has learned the lesson of of uh, of, of supporting uh, a dictator like Hissen Habre. Reid, let's go to the international broader implications of this case of Issan Abri. Uh, first of all, when the judge read out the convictions, uh, he was citing an article. Explain what constitution he was referring to. The trial took place, of course, in Senegal. What was the, the document to which he re uh, referred? And this idea, which you mentioned earlier as well, of universal jurisdiction, the line you said uh, from from the case of Pinochet to Isen Abre. Uh, if you could elaborate on that, explain how uh, people accused of war crimes can be tried in countries uh, apart from their country of residence or nationality. Sure. This, this trial originally was based on the idea of universal jurisdiction. I mean, Pinochet was arrested in London. Um, uh, the U.K. on a Spanish warrant. Both the U.K. and Spain had jurisdiction over him because the crimes he committed, uh, uh, were, like torture, were crimes of universal jurisdiction, meaning that any court in the world, if they have custody over the defendant, um, can prosecute those crimes. And um, the, the trial in Senegal was cr before a court in the Senegalese judicial system created with the support of the African Union. And we're seeing today around the world um, more and more hundreds, actually, of crimes, uh, of uh, trials of universal jurisdiction. No, Habri is the only one, the only head of state uh, to be prosecuted before the courts of another country. But just recently, uh, we saw uh, in uh, France prosecute uh, Liberian warlords. We saw uh, Germany prosecute um, Syrian intelligence officials. More and more countries are using universal jurisdiction um, uh, to prosecute uh, 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 crimes committed. For the moment, it's mostly European countries, um, which have—many of them have set up special units, war crimes units. Um, who prosecute often people who come in uh, as, as, as asylum seekers. Um, but we're seeing uh, more and more countries adopt universal jurisdiction. We're seeing a huge amount of justice around the world. Um, and we're seeing, in fact, the creation of what could be called a new ecosystem of international justice. Um, I mean, you have the International Criminal Court at the top, uh, the International Criminal Court, which prosecutes cases of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, uh, when national courts are unwilling or unable to do so. Um, in 20 years, uh, and at a cost of $2 billion, uh, the International Criminal Court has actually never sustained the atrocity conviction of any state official at any level anywhere in the world. It's quite actually amazing. Um, but the fact that the court exists has had a huge impact on the world. Um, it's first because it expresses this international commitment, so-called, um, uh, in favor of justice. Uh, also because many of its provisions have been transposed into law in other countries. The, 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 the articles the judge read out were articles uh, that were transposed 
uh, into the articles of mm. the court in Senegal from the ICC, and also because the ICC actually puts a lot of pressure um, on countries um, to move forward or, or risk uh, their officials being prosecuted at the ICC. And one of the reasons that the Habre case took place, was able to go forward, was because the African Union um, was feeling picked on, as it was, um, by the International Criminal Court. All, the first 29 indictments of the International Criminal Court were all Africans. And the, and the African Union wanted to show that, it was, that Africa was capable of prosecuting these kinds of crimes. And so it, um, it, it invested in this court uh, in Senegal. Um, but we are seeing, um, whether it's national courts, uh, uh, we saw recently the in, in Guinea the 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 um, the prosecution of of Daddy's Camera for a stadium massacre in 2008. We saw in in, in Peru Fujimori in Guatemala Rio Smont. Um, uh, we're seeing around the world a huge amount of justice that is happening, not at the International Criminal Court necessarily. Um, but, but what is interesting is that all the cases I just described are cases which, like the Habre case, were victim-driven cases. These are not top-down cases. These, these are cases in which victims um, and their allies have organized, have fought for 10, 20 years to create the political conditions, to do the documentation, often to hand to judges uh, on a silver platter uh, the documentation and fight uh, to create those political conditions for these trials to happen. Reid, you mentioned earlier uh, that one of the countries that has invoked universal jurisdiction to prosecute war crimes uh, was Germany in the case of the conviction of uh, the Syrian intelligence official uh, whom you cited uh, for overseeing the torture of prisoners at the notorious Al-Khatib uh, prison in Damascus. This was reportedly the first trial to target a government that is still in power. He's an official in the Assad government. So if you could talk about the significance of that and also uh, how victims are to bring these cases. Is it because uh, there were Syrian victims of the Assad regime, of this particular uh, person who were living in Germany and therefore they were able to invoke a uh, universal jurisdiction? Or can victims anywhere in the world uh, uh, bring cases against, uh, 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 you know, a, a, a war criminal uh, wherever he or she may be from? Well, in this case, of course, I mean, you know, you have massive crimes being committed in Syria. Um, the ICC is cut off as a as a possible route because uh, Syria has not ratified the ICC treaty and the Security Council uh, can't refer Syria because of obviously because of a Russian or Chinese veto. Um, but you do have, first of all, uh, a the UN created this international investigative mechanism on Syria, a kind of a group of prosecutors who are putting together cases. Um, in addition to which, you have NGOs like the Center for International Justice and Accountability that have specialized in, in bringing out regime documents, massive number of documents. You have a former photographer of one of the torture centers, so-called Caesar, taking pictures. Um, of, of victims. And the, uh, this mechanism um, then distributes cases that it is developing to national courts. 
And so the case in Syria, which was based on the fact that these defendants were in Europe, I, I believe that uh, two of them were in Germany and, and two of them were in, uh, one of them was in France, but I could be wrong. Um, it was based on the fact that these people, uh, that Germany had opened, uh, uh, that its war crimes unit had opened what's called a structural investigation of the situation in Syria, so that whenever a Syrian suspect was within its reach, um, a case could be triggered. And so all of these funneled in um, to the cases uh, in in Germany, to the, to the important conviction uh, earlier this year in Koblenz of, of two high-ranking uh, Syrian intelligence officers. Now, each, each country has its own uh, uh, threshold, and each country has its own requirements. Um, in many cases, as in the case that we brought, the Habre case, uh, both Senegal and Belgium allow victims to go directly to court to file a criminal complaint. Um, most uh, common law countries, the U.S., for instance, you can't do that. Um, uh, and so, and, and many countries also put in political filters. So um, we uh, earlier, uh, together with uh, Michael Ratner and, and, and Wolfgang Kallack of the European Center for uh, uh, Constitutional and Human Rights, we had filed a case uh, in Germany, two cases, um, against Donald Rumsfeld uh, and, and Bush administration officials. Um, for uh, alleged torture and waterboarding and, 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 and crimes committed against Muslim detainees in the war on terror. Uh, the first time it went to the German courts, uh, it was dismissed because they said the U.S. was investigating. Uh, then when it became clear that the U.S. wasn't investigating, um, they said that the chances of success, uh, uh, they threw it out because the chances of, of, of putting the case together were not sufficient. So we do, I mean, unfortunately, uh, throughout this uh, infrastructure and this uh, of international justice, we see double standards. Um, you know, we see it um, both. I talked about how the, the the Belgian law and universal jurisdiction crumbled when it was uh, filed against the U.S. The same thing happened in Spain, um, which had prosecuted uh, criminals uh, from from El Salvador and Argentina. But when cases in Spain were filed. Um, against uh, China for Tibet, against Israel, against the United States, that law also was significantly reduced. Um, in the United Kingdom, uh, laws that allowed victims to go directly to court um, to uh, invoke universal jurisdiction were also curtailed after uh, cases were brought or attempted to be brought against alleged Israeli war criminals. Um, so we're, we're seeing a lot of justice, but we're also seeing a lot of double standards. And Reid, also uh, now, uh, given the present uh, war in Ukraine, uh, where there's probably an unprecedented number of documents that uh, demonstrate war crimes by uh, the Russians in Ukraine. But of course, Russia, like uh, the U.S., Israel, etc., is a very powerful country. So what do you think the prospects are for uh, Russian officials being held accountable in any one of these courts? And also the relationship between the courts, hybrid courts, where Isen Abre was tried and uh, an international criminal tribunal like the one, for instance, that was set up uh, in Yugoslavia, on Yugoslavia. Well, of course, what we're seeing in Ukraine, um, I mean, the naked Russian aggression, the massive war crimes have provoked an unprecedented justice response. 
Um, you know, not only are Ukrainians, um, uh, which I so admirably putting down what they're doing, documenting war crimes, um, uh, the ICC has opened up its biggest office ever uh, in Kiev. Um, the uh, Dozens of countries have open cases under universal jurisdiction or are sending uh, uh, technical experts. Um, uh, we're seeing the kind of response to this atrocity that human rights activists would like to see as a response to all atrocities. Um, it's heartwarming. Um, uh, it's going certainly to lead, I would assume, to some prosecutions. I mean, the, the, the Ukrainian are capturing Russians all the time. They've already started to prosecute some very low-level people. The question, of course, is how far up they can go and, and of course, how whether they could actually capture uh, any high-ranking uh, Russian officials. What is unfortunate, though, is that we also see, again, the double standards. Um, I mean, the, 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 the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, who rightly ran to Ukraine, who rightly talks about Ukraine as a crime scene, who talks about how the law cannot remain silent, um, he has also an open investigation on Palestine, um, uh, which, on which he's not at least visibly doing anything. I talked to Raji Sarani, who's been on your show many times the other day, and he said, the prosecutor is not doing anything. Um, uh, he, the prosecutor has an office in, uh, has an investigation open in Afghanistan. Um, yet last year, the prosecutor announced that he was deprioritizing the, uh, his, the part of his investigation that relates to potential American and allied war crimes in Afghanistan um, because he doesn't have the resources. Uh, and yet the resources are flowing in for Ukraine, which is as it should be. It's just that there are a lot of other places in the world uh, that need this kind of justice. Well, we see what happened to the ICC, the International Criminal Court prosecutor, uh, Fatou Bensouda, uh, before the current prosecutor, um, Karim Khan, who's been going back and forth to Ukraine. In the case of the Gambian Fatou Bensouda, who is formerly the chief prosecutor of the court, uh, Trump designated her as a specially designated national— um, forbidding all U.S. people and companies from doing business with her. Now, it's true the Biden administration reversed that designation last year, um, removing her from that list. But Secretary of State Antony Blinken released a statement saying, while that was inappropriate and ineffective, they would not support the investigation of uh, Afghanistan or the what's happened in the Palestinian uh, territories, the occupied territories. So how powerful—I mean, and also Israel, Russia and the United States are not signatories to the ICC— is it those powerful countries, even non-signatories, that determine what the ICC does and, more importantly, what they don't investigate? Well, these are certainly, you know, important uh, factors. I mean, the U.S. objects—the um, uh, U.S.—under Democrats, the U.S. has kind of a good neighbor policy with the ICC. It supports, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in many ways, ICC investigations. Um, ironically, the, I mean, the main objection the U.S. has uh, ideologically or legally to the ICC is that the ICC has jurisdiction over American citizens uh, if 
they commit crimes uh, in countries that have ratified the ICC. So an American who commits a war crime in Afghanistan is subject to the uh, uh, jurisdiction of the ICC. That drives Washington crazy. Washington says, we haven't ratified the ICC statute, uh, therefore you don't have jurisdiction. Um, now, but, but if you look at the reverse, that's exactly what's happening in, in Ukraine. Uh, Russians are alleged, Russia, which has not ratified the uh, ICC treaty, uh, Russian nationals are alleged to have committed war crimes in Ukraine. Um, and so the U.S. really is tiptoeing around this line about how they feel about the ICC investigation. Um, obviously, the U.S. supports uh, bringing uh, Russian uh, uh, war criminals to justice, as, uh, but it can't actually say that it supports the ICC doing it um, because that would uh, go against the U.S.'s fundamental uh, legal objection to the ICC. But I do see, I do see this. Um, I mean, if it, I spent a lot of time in Africa, as you know, and Africans look at this as very one-sided. Uh, India even spoke at the Security Council uh, about the Ukraine investigation. Said, "Look, we need objectivity. You can't just be investigating the crimes of certain countries." And they all cite this deprioritization of uh, the uh, crimes in Afghanistan, the lack of movement on uh, 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 any investigation uh, into the occupied Palestinian territories, um, and uh, the, uh, also when British uh, there, were, there were cases, because uh, Britain has ratified the ICC treaty, there was a case against uh, uh, British officers for torture in Iraq. Um, the ICC closed that investigation, saying that Britain uh, was adequately investigating them, even though thousands of cases had gone uh, to, to, to British uh, adjudication and there was not one conviction. So we, we are unfortunately seeing a double standard based on uh, based on political power at all levels. And that's, again, why um, it's so important to have these cases uh, like the Hissen Habre case, uh, like the case we saw uh, this week in, 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 in France, uh, like the Rios Mont case, uh, where it's victims uh, who are organizing uh, to bring uh, justice uh, to their countries. Reid, before we end, uh, just to talk uh, specifically about this issue of uh, hybrid courts, the courts that were used to try Isen Abre uh, as against international criminal tribunals like the one that was set up in Yugoslavia, where famously the Bosnian-Croat war criminal uh, Slobodan Praljak died after taking potassium cyanide in the Hague courtroom once he was sentenced to 20 years for war crimes in Bosnia. So talk about this, the, the hybrid courts versus uh, international criminal tribunals. Well, one of the main differences at this point is cost. Um, I mean, the, the cost, the Yugoslav court, which was very successful, I mean, tried over 70, uh, convicted over 70 people. Uh, the International Criminal Court, as I mentioned, cost $2 billion. The, the, the Rwanda court, the Yugoslavia court, cost a billion dollars each. Um, the Hissen Habre court cost $10 million. Um, uh, we are seeing more and more uh, the, 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 the artifice of hybridization, which is that a country, and now this is happening in Gambia, where I'm, I, I currently work with Gambian government and Gambian victims, the former dictator of Gambia, 
um, Yaya Jami lives in exile in Equatorial Guinea. And Gambia has just announced that it's, it wants to bring him back, um, but to do it before a hybrid court, a hybrid court that would give it um, this, a hybrid court together with ECOWAS, the, the, the organization of West African states, that would give it a political um, uh, strength to get an extradition that would allow it to hold trials um, outside of the Gambia. Basically, what we have learned is um, that different, you need different solutions for different situations. And by creating a, once you have jurisdiction, once you have uh, legal jurisdiction over a defendant, you can really create the kind of a court that is tailor-made um, to a situation. So in this case, in the Habre case, Senegal and the African Union created a court within the Senegalese legal system, but that had many features like the use of international law, the use of television, the use of legal principles like command responsibility, um, the full backing of the African Union that a Senegalese court would not have had. In the Gambia, what Gambia is saying is, we, we're, we're too small, we don't have the, the resources, our, our legal system is not adapted. We also believe that bringing Jame back to Gambia to prosecute him, to detain him and prosecute him here might be destabilizing. Let's bring in the entire Region. We can hold some of the trials, like the trial of Yaya Jame in, 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 in Ghana, let's say. Same thing happened in Sierra Leone. Um, Charles, Sierra Leone special court was a hybrid court between Sierra Leone and the United Nations. Um, it prosecuted, I believe, nine people. One of them was Charles Taylor. People felt it would be too dangerous to have Charles Taylor tried on the ground, so he was tried in, in The Hague. The optics of doing it in The Hague were not the best because it, again, looked like it was white person's justice. Um, but we, have, we are learning in situation after situation, uh, there's, a, there's a hybrid court in the Central African Republic now, um, which just recently uh, handed down its first convictions. I mean, there are actually some two dozen hybrid courts now um, using this principle, um, which are delivering justice at a close to local level and at a much lesser cost. Finally, on reparations for the people of Chad, yes, Isen Haber, who died last year, was imprisoned for life after their incredibly courageous testimony. But when it comes to reparations, Reid, can you talk about what the African Union, what the Chadian government, what the victims received in addition to the justice of imprisoning uh, the, the man who had murdered or mutilated or had them uh, hurt in some way. Well, of course, for victims, justice means many things, not just putting the bad guy in jail. Um, it means uh, legal reform. It means guarantees that this won't happen again. But for victims, especially these very poor victims, it also means reparations. And they have been fighting since the very beginning for reparations. And, and, and they've been fighting. The Chadian government owes them reparations uh, as a general principle. If you are tortured by a government, that government owes you reparations. Um, both the the court that sentenced Hissen Habre, as well as a Chadian court, which sentenced 20 of Habre's accomplices in a trial that was also very important, also led by Jacqueline Mudena. Um, both, both sentenced, both ordered uh, massive reparations to the victims. And I've been fighting uh, together with uh, the victims and with Jacqueline uh, for another six years. And, and just last week, 
um, uh, just a few weeks ago, the government of Chad announced that it was going to put into an African Union trust fund that had been created $15 million in reparations. Uh, the African Union has also put in $5 million, so $20 million uh, in reparations. It, it, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, we calculate it comes out to about $2,700. Uh, dollars per victim, which is does not nearly cover um, what how their lives were upended. But I can assure you that in Chad, it's going to go a long way if it actually gets to them, uh, which which of course we're hopeful that it does. But reparations are an integral part of justice. Um, people often forget that it's not just about putting someone in jail, as important as that is. As it's not just about a lesson as important as that is. It's also about um, uh, making victims whole, and particularly these victims um, who are such heroes. I mean, it, the reason the Habre case, the Habre trial could be done for $10 million is because the victims worked for 20 years to put the case together. Um, they should have been paid for that. I mean, as part of our campaign, they, they, they were, sta- I mean, we had victims on staff of the campaign. Um, but this is the kind of justice uh, that should be universal. Reed Brody, the acclaimed international human rights attorney, author of the new book, To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Issein Abre. Up next, Ed Young, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer, on his book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Stay with us. I never really had a problem Because of leaving But everything reminds me of her This evening So if I seem a little out of it Sorry Why should I lie? Everything reminds me of her. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We end today's show with Ed Young, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer at The Atlantic magazine, who's done extensive coverage of the pandemic. In September, he tweeted, quote, some personal news. I'm taking a six-month sabbatical starting now. These past three years have been the most professionally meaningful of my life, but they've also deeply broken me. The pandemic isn't over, but after a long time spent staring into the sun, I need to blink. He wrote, I'm not giving up, but I understand that we're in this for the long haul, and I refuse to burn out completely so soon. If I've learned anything from the chronic illness communities whom I cover and care about, it's that pacing matters. Well, before Ed Young took his sabbatical, Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I spoke to him about his book out this year, which he started before the pandemic and passionately worked on throughout. It's titled An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. I asked him what inspired him to write the book. So this book is about the incredible ways in which other animals sense the world around us. Uh, at the core of it is a concept called Umwelt, uh, the idea that each creature 
has its own um, sensory bubble, its own particular sets of sights and sounds and textures and smells that it can perceive, but that other animals might not be able to. So my eyesight is very sharp, my fingers are very sensitive, but I can't detect the magnetic field of the earth in the way a turtle or a songbird can. I can't detect um, ultraviolet light that uh, bees or actually most other sighted animals can. I can't um, see, uh, I can't detect the electric fields surrounding other creatures in the way that a shark or a platypus can. Every creature has its own set of, has its own sensory world. It's only perceiving a thin sliver of the fullness of reality. So an immense world is a journey through those other worlds. It's a way of expanding our understanding of the uh, world around us through the eyes and noses and ears of the other creatures that we share this planet with. If you could elaborate, what do you think the conclusions are that we should draw from the experiences that you, uh, the observations that you make, uh, I mean, to the extent that we can, that the experience of the world, of every species, every living creature is distinct, that in in the same physical space, as you say in the first few pages of the book, these creatures will see, hear, feel, and smell something altogether different uh, from humans. Now, our understanding of that has intrinsic value, you suggest. What is the effect of that understanding, or what would you like people to understand, as it were, from that understanding? So three things. Um, first, that um, I, I think that the Umwelt concept is in, incredibly humbling, right? Like, our senses give us this powerful illusion that we are experiencing all there is to perceive. It, it, our subjective experience of the world feels total, but, but it isn't. That's an illusion. Um, we are only getting a small part of what there is to perceive. Um, the second thing I think it, it um, shows the even like mundane and uh, boring aspects of the world to be full of wonder and magic. Um, you know, when I walk my dog, Typo, around our neighborhood, by looking at what he's smelling, I understand that there's so much in even the most familiar of streets um, that uh, that he can perceive, but I can't. You know, to the um, nose of an albatross, the supposedly featureless ocean is roiling with um, scented topography. Um, to, uh, to other insects, um, the plants around us um, in our parks and gardens are thrumming with vibrational songs that we can't hear. The, the world is full of wonder and magic, and, and much of it uh, is imperceptible to us unless we think about the senses of other animals. And finally, I think we are harming other creatures around us by neglecting their sensory worlds. Uh, in my cover story for The Atlantic, um, I talk about the problems of light and noise pollution, sensory pollution, stimuli that we've flooded into the world that are distracting, harming um, other animals around us, uh, and that we don't even think of as pollutants. But they are problems by filling the night with light and the quiet with noise. Um, we are seriously harming a lot of the other creatures around us, and we need to take that into account. You conclude the book by making this passionate case to save the quiet and preserve the dark. How do you do that? Um, Actually, with remarkable simplicity, um, a lot of ecological problems, climate change being the most obvious examples, have a kind of runaway momentum to them. They're, They're very hard to address, even if we stop Um, say, greenhouse gas production today. 
But light and noise pollution go away immediately, often at the, turn, at the flick of a switch. They are problems that we can deal with right now. And, you know, again, as, as always, as with the pandemic and other things, this is about policy rather than individual choices. So we can turn off lights at night. We can slow down uh, vehicles on roads and in the oceans, which would reduce the noise that they produce. We could change the color of um, LEDs and other light sources so that they are less harmful to other animals around us. There's lots of policy measures that we can put into place, but it's whether we have the will to do so, whether we recognize that these are problems um, that, that demand solutions. One of the central ideas is the concept you write about Umwelt, a term coined by the Estonian-German zoologist Jakob von Uxkill in the early 20th century, the grandfather of the man who founded the Right Livelihood Awards, Jakob von Uxkill. Um, what is Umwelt? Lay that out in the grandest sense. So the Umwelt is the name for this sensory bubble that I've been talking about. So my Umwelt includes, say, um, colors from red to violet. It includes um, sounds within a certain frequency range. Um, but, for example, the Umwelt of um, my dog um, includes a, a lot of smells that I can't perceive. Uh, it includes a slightly higher range of, um, of pitches that I can't hear. Um, so every animal has its own umwelt, its own sensory bubble, um, and its its own its own little sliver of this immense world that we live in. And Ed, one last finally, you mentioned your dog, and uh, many people have pets like dogs and cats, um, and although you write about, uh, of course, animals in the wild, if you could. Talk more deeply about your relationship with your own dog and how that changed your life. Yeah, so dogs live in a world dominated by smell. Um, you know, if I, I am a sighted human. Uh, my world is predominantly visual. Um, typos, uh, my dogs, uh, it, his world is, is one of smell. Um, and we've tried to pay attention to that throughout his, uh, the entirety of his life. So every day when we go for walks, at least once a day, he goes on a sniff walk, and that's a walk that he controls. He has full agency about what he wants to do, and what he wants to do is to smell. He explores intently and enthusiastically the world around him, and we let him do that. Uh, the walk goes at his own pace. Usually, we spend half an hour just going around one block, but it's good for him. I think there are a lot of studies showing that dogs are happier and more optimistic and less anxious when they get to use their noses. I think it's a shame that a lot of dog owners yank their dogs along on walks, pulling them away from those experiences. But those experiences matter. You know, Typo explores the world through his nose. He sees new, he smells new stuff all the time. He gets social information about the dogs in his neighborhood, just like I get when I check Twitter or Instagram. Um, you know, it's it's smelling is a vital part of his doghood. And it's crucial then for me to respect that and for, to give him opportunities to use his nose. As a pup parent myself, do you know what he sees? Uh, well, um, one thing he sees is fewer colors than I do. So um, a dog's it's it's a common myth that dogs don't see color at all, but they do see from um but they do, they do see colors. It's just a limited rainbow. So uh, reds will look like a dark yellow to typo. Um, some greens will just look like gray. A lot of purples and violets will look um, dark blue. So his rainbow really just goes from yellow to blue with some whites and grays in the middle. 
That's Ed Young, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer at The Atlantic. His book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And that does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh and Zazu Goodpa. Thanks so much for joining us.